Robert Smalls was an indentured servant that basically freed himself? How in the world did he do this and free his whole family and many others too? How is the speech of a brave black activist, Fannie Lou Hamer, shut down by President Johnson during a live television event? Find out about these incredibly brave people next on Technically a Conversation. Greetings, super friends. Welcome to another edition of Technically a Conversation. Here, we take turns sharing something new we've learned with each other and hope you find it interesting, too. I'm one of your co-hosts, Isela. Joining me, as always, is the other co-host, Jose. How are you? Good. How about yourself? Not too bad. You ready for the winter storm? Snowmageddon is what I kept hearing people call it, which I thought was funny. I heard that uh, Ted Cruz already fucked off to Cancun again, so... What a bastard, but are we really surprised? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm, I made that up. I'm not sure if he did. <laughs> I know. Well, we'll find out by the time this airs. <laughs> so we have crossed 1,800 listens. Very exciting. Want to remind everybody still about the ongoing contest. Please help us grow our listener base by leaving us a review. It helps other people find us. Thank you to those who have left us a review. And what should they do, Jose? Just leave us a review and send us a screenshot to one of our socials. We're at Greetings TAC everywhere. All the details are at technicallyaconversation.com. The deets. It almost sounds like I know what I'm talking about, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You always do. (laughs) (laughs) We'll kick it off with some shout outs. I know you have some shout outs. I want to shout out Erica and Elena. Yeah. Thank you for continuing to always share our posts and videos and everything to your socials. We really do appreciate you spreading the word. I almost want to upgrade you guys to, do we have a super duper level of super duper friends? (laughs) (laughs) If we had that level, you guys would be it. I'm going to tell you right now. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) I feel like since both of their names start with these, they should just get upgraded to like the Wonder Twins or something. Oh, dude. I used to love that. (laughs) That's so cool. Uh, So thank you, ladies. I always appreciate every time you guys share our posts. We also have another shout out, Irene A. Thank you so much for sharing pictures of when you visited Mercy Brown's grave. Super cool. I know uh, her husband, Hector A, also shared the pictures with us. So thank you so much. And Hector, welcome. I appreciate you listening. Welcome to the show. And we hope that you're enjoying it. Yeah. So for today, being that this will be released in February, this is going to be the awesome Black History Month. I thought we would dive into a couple of people's stories. How do you feel about that? I'm all in. Sounds good. Yeah. The very first story of this incredibly brave person comes from an episode of the podcast Criminal. It's titled Robert Smalls. He was born an indentured servant in 1839 in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother, also indentured, worked inside the home, and so did Robert. He grew up to work with her. The day that Robert was born, coincidentally, there was a hanging of another indentured servant. So therefore, pretty much the whole town had left for this public execution. This left his mom in her mid-40s, from what I understand, 
giving birth to Robert alone outside of a small shack in the back of the, you know, the big house. Even that already sounds like a hard start, just right off the bat. Robert's life was slightly different than most other kids who were born into this indentured servant's life because he was actually allowed to stay with his mother until he was much older compared to other indentured children. As a child, Robert was really curious and he was really vocal about feeling cheated that he couldn't go to school. You know, he wanted to learn. He was intellectually curious. When the owner passed away, the youngest son, Henry, inherited all the indentured servants, including, of course, Robert and Robert's mom. Henry was sent 50 miles away to Charleston at 12 years old to work. I don't know if you can imagine working and being torn away from your mom at 12 years old to work. That's pretty rough. No, not at 12. That's way too young. Right? Were you already at least like mowing lawns and stuff like that at that age? I was. I would do a lot of the yard work by that age, but yeah, like I still felt like I was a little kid. I agree. I remember my brother going out for like a few bucks to mow some lawns, but that was it, you know? Anyway, yeah, something I still can't fathom. Um, In full honesty, I am pretty sure I was playing with Barbie still (laughs) at 12 years old, and my mom was still sewing like her beautiful outfits and dresses and stuff like that. When Robert first arrived into Charleston, He worked as a waiter in a pretty fancy restaurant. He had a couple of other jobs, which included loading and unloading cargo from ships. As to be expected, Henry took most of the money that Robert earned. At 17, he was given permission to get married, so he married Hannah Jones, another indentured servant. His great-great-grandson went on to say Robert really valued family, and this could have been perhaps because of the way he was torn away from his mother so traumatically and at such a young age. Therefore, his priority was to really find a way to protect his family as best he could, which led him to speak to his wife's owner to negotiate a price for her freedom. And by this time, when he figured out what he was going to say, they already had a daughter. So he wanted to see if he can buy the family freedom. Later on, they even had a son. He still hadn't paid for their freedom yet. And Robert was afraid that the price was going to hike up. But thankfully, it didn't. They got to all come in one bundle price. Thankfully, Robert was so smart with his money that even the little money that he did keep from his wages, what he did was he would buy tobacco and candy or fruit, and he would sell it at a higher price at the docks, allowing him to ultimately put a $100 deposit on his family. And let's keep in mind, he was buying their freedom, but he himself actually didn't even have his own freedom from Henry. So the conundrum still remained, but I think his priority was still so much like, I just got to at least free my family, which I think is very selfless of him. I, I, I love that. Then the Civil War came. Henry was sent off to work on a Confederate ship. It was a huge steamship called the Planter, where he started as a deckhand. Then he was promoted to a wheelman where he's Uh, was able to navigate the shallow waters. He worked with a crew of a total of 10, where seven of them were indentured servants and three white officers. When docked, technically, the white officers were supposed to sleep on board and never leave the ship. But as you can imagine, they came and went whenever they wanted, leaving the rest of them alone really overnight very often. And one of those neat evenings, as a joke, someone put the captain's hat on Robert Small. And thus, the seed was planted. 
he started wondering if he could really impersonate the captain. Then he could actually take his wife and his kids to be a free family. Robert and the other crew members held a secret meeting and they all kind of talked it over with the other crew members. They also wanted to save their families as well. All details were carefully thought out and planned like they were gonna do this shit, which is pretty ballsy. (laughs) On May 12th, 1862, they had just come back from particularly hard work. This signaled to Robert that the white officers would be especially eager to get off the ship for the evening. He knew that was going to have to be the night of the escape. It had finally come. As time drew nearer, two deckhands felt like it was too risky. They got all nervous and they backed out. And Robert said, you can leave. And he was only really left with the hope that they would not reveal the plan of the big escape to anybody because then that would really throw a complete wrench and everything. And it was not uncommon for wives to visit their husbands on the working ships so long as they got home by their curfew. So the wives did come slowly. You know, everybody was there that was supposed to be there. The pact was if something, anything went wrong and they knew they were going to get caught, they would all go to the base of the ship where they had lined it with dynamite and they would explode the ship. Death by their own volition was better than any punishment that was surely to come. Which is crazy to think. Freedom or death, right? That's really it. Those are the only choices they had. It is very ballsy. Yeah, dude. I I kept thinking how ballsy he was. I was like, first of all, it's even ballsy just to even think about that, right? And then he's like, no, we're going to fucking do this. I, I think that's awesome. So May 13th, 1862, in the early quiet morning, they raised the Confederate flag the flag of the state of California, I'm sorry, state of South Carolina. Robert put on the captain's hat as well as an overcoat and off they went. And because he had studied the captain's every move on all the numerous trips when they were kind of passing the forts, he already knew the whistle passcodes for all five different forts. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He had to know all of them. How amazing for him to just be like, okay, this one is this passcode and this one. Is, I mean, he couldn't write it down anywhere. You know, he had to pretend like he wasn't even, like it was nothing really. They crossed Confederate forts and guards very calmly, not to trigger any suspicion. The engineer later confessed that he was so nervous that he couldn't even feel his knees. And furthermore, he said that the whole crew had like the look of terror on them, except for our hero, Robert. He was cool as eyes. And he recounted that he remembers seeing Robert saluting another boat, another with a friendly whistle, another he even commented um, to a passing tugboat, something about the fog, (laughs) like the cojones on this guy. It was pretty awesome. I actually take incredible delight even imagining him just kind of like, saluting as he's sailing with him and everybody else, right? (laughs) Towards freedom. (laughs) When they finally passed the Confederate stronghold of Fort Sumter, he gave a whistle, which is what he was supposed to do. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And then he actually, it said that he gave an extra one as a final farewell to the Confederacy. (laughs) Suddenly it got very like BB, uh, not BB8, the other one, R2D2. <laughs> Those are the ones that I remember from growing up in the hood. That's what I imagined. Yeah, for sure. Perhaps even 
this this like extra salute could have even been like an audible one finger salute, right? I don't know. This is also my I could be projecting. <laughs> um, his wife was also really smart because on her own accord, she had sewn together some white sheets to create a white flag. And thank goodness she did because another ship of the Union had approached them. And uh, this is actually when they had to pull down the Confederate flag and then they raised the white flag just to kind of show, hey, hey, like we mean no harm, blah, blah, blah. He was celebrated in New York, Boston, cities alike. Of course, you know, not down south, but he even got to talk to President Lincoln. And it's said that his story of bravery helped convince Lincoln to allow black men in the Union Army. Robert himself went back to South Carolina to become the very first African-American naval officer to command a United States naval vessel. Isn't that pretty awesome? That is. Yeah, I really love the story. So what happened to those two guys that decided not to go through with it? Like they just left the ship or? They left the ship and nothing more was really said of him. Thankfully, they didn't say anything. That's what we know for sure. Otherwise, I think some people would have been there, you know. When he returned to South Carolina, he bought the same house that he once worked in with his mom. <laughs> and after the war, the wife of his former owner showed up at the house. She had been known to have some mental issues. I'm assuming she probably had like Alzheimer's. They didn't really specify but they did say that she thought she was going home. And that's why she showed up at her old house, which is actually Robert's house now. So if you were Robert, I'm curious, what do you think you would do if you saw the wife of someone who essentially owned you like you were a pair of shoes? Put her in the kitchen and made her cook or something. <laughs> <laughs> this is my house, lady. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's that's very sexist. No. <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he probably took the high road and was like nothing but nice and courteous to her. He really did. Robert welcomed her. He opened his doors. He took care of her. They even went as far as setting a plate for, for her at the table, although she did refuse to eat with everybody. But nonetheless, I think this speaks volumes about what a forgiving man he really was. Did they say what happened to Robert's mom? Oh, no. By this point, they didn't say anything about Robert's mom. Her, her name, I thought, was really cute. Her name is Lydia Polite. That's a cool name. Robert went on to be elected to South Carolina House and Senate, then the U.S. House of Representatives, where he served several terms. And that's really the end of his story, for at least without going into a ton of detail. But what I really got from him is just like, dare to dream really big dreams. How is an indentured servant who, you know, who really came from nothing to, to be the first Naval officer, like, that's amazing. That's pretty awesome. This is a good time to take a little break. And then when we come back, we will find out the story of Fannie Lou Hamer. Diddle Wave, Diddle Wave. All your online service song, Diddle Wave. Find out what's got all our customers singing. We offer a comprehensive online suite to meet all your needs. 128-bit encrypted email, check. A fast, secure web browser, check. Database software for your business, check. Protection from ransomware, check. Diddle Wave, Diddle Wave. All your online service song, Diddle Wave. One terabyte of backup and online storage, check. End-to-end -end encrypted messaging, 
check. Web hosting and domain registration, check. Malware and virus protection, check. Day-to-day -day life is hard enough already. Let us take the hassle out of your online presence. We take your privacy very seriously and never sell your information to any third parties or advertisers. Sign up for a free trial and see why our customers are singing. Diddle wave, diddle wave. All your online service song, diddle wave. All right, welcome back. How was your break? Good. I was a little disappointed that I didn't see you dancing. <laughs> it's because I'm pretty sure everybody heard the very beginning of my dog barking, which caused me some concern and some little <laughs> moments of panic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not the most professional, guys. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. How was your break, aside from your dog barking? I, it honestly was filled with a lot of panic because I was like, oh my God, is this dog going to make it in before Digital Wave is over? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, other than that, it was fantastic. Good to hear. <laughs> we are going to learn about Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh, my goodness. Everybody needs to know her, which is why I'm doing this. <laughs> she was born in 1917 to a really big family of sharecroppers. She was the 20th child. Wow. That's a big family. <laughs> yeah. And she started working in the plantation at the tender young age of six years old. This is where she continued to work for 18 years. And for those unfamiliar with uh, sharecropping, it's really just another way of uh, white plantation owners to keep and exploit their help by allowing their servants, which are now somewhat paid, but they pay them a portion of the value of the crop. But as to be expected, it's a very minimal amount. Of course, nobody's ever getting paid what they really should, right? And hence, even today, which uh, is really just another form of slavery. Like, what's that phrase of the whole lipstick on a pig? That's just that's just a dolled up version of still something bad. <laughs> uh, the families, they couldn't leave the farms even if they wanted to for fear of being in debt to the owner of the farm. But Fannie Lou, she got married. She adopted two daughters. And this is because she couldn't have kids of her own because in 1961, she was sterilized. Without her own consent. She thought she went in for routine surgery to have a small uterine. It was a benign tumor, but a small uterine tumor removed. And the doctors performed a full hysterectomy. And it was so common back then that it actually has its own name. It's called a Mississippi appendectomy. Isn't that awful? That's awful, yeah. This crime that was committed to her was really what set her on the path of activism. We can absolutely understand why the complete mistrust of doctors developed even in the black community if this was happening so often. It wasn't until 1962, a meeting by Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, it was also called SNCC for abbreviated purposes, where she learned that she had the right to vote. It wasn't until the age of 44 that she realized that. This was news to her. It was news to a whole bunch of other people that were there at the meeting. And of course, it was news to them because the county was 70% black, and yet the only people in office were all white. That's some really rough math. With the new information, um, her and 17 others all gathered together. They all got on a school bus, and they headed down to register to vote. The hostility that they faced was really awful. It was white people driving alongside the bus, waving their guns, surely hollering some offensive and hateful things. 
understandably, everybody on the bus got really nervous and they got really upset. Fanny Lou had noticed everybody was getting nervous and she started to sing so she can calm everyone down. She sang the song, This Little Light of Mine. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Okay, great. Which I think is really sweet. I don't think she could have chosen a better song. It was perfect. So this soothed their fears and it kind of re-energized them. You know, it really reassured them that this is what needed to be done. They got off the bus only to face registrars closing and like other awful things like they were forcing them to take literacy tests, which is just another way of clear voter suppression, which again, we still see today. Fannie Lou told that lady behind the counter that she's going to come back every 30 days until she passed that test, <laughs> which I totally loved the conviction. I was like, yes, ma'am, when I heard that. I mean, if that's not the definition of determination, right? I don't know what it is. Unfortunately, after that first trip, they all had to go home. Nobody additional was registered because of all the racism and awful voter suppression literacy tests that were given. And to throw salt in the wound, they were stopped by police. Get this. The bus was too yellow. Can you believe this bullshit? No, that is BS. Right. And by this account, like, should we arrest Big Bird too? Like, come on. This is just fucking ridiculous. The landowner where she worked found out that she was trying to register to vote and actually went down there and demanded that she withdraw her registration. Now, brave Fannie Lou calmly explained she wasn't there to register him. She was there to register herself. Like <laughs> This, I was like, oh, my gosh, like that. That's pretty amazing that she was like, I think this guy got this a little twisted. I'm not here for you. I'm here for me. The owner basically fired her. Her and her husband did agree that um, the husband and the two daughters would stay behind on the plantation, or I'm sorry, on the uh, farm to stay and work so nobody would be in debt to the, um, to the owner. And she went to live with one of her best friends, who's also a big activist, Mary Tucker. Fannie Lou's husband had a gut feeling that his wife wasn't safe on a specific day, September 10th, 1969. And he packed up his daughters, he picked up Fannie, and they drove to Sumner, Mississippi. And boy, you got to be glad that you have those gut feelings because he definitely kept her safe. Um, it turns out that night, Mary Tucker's house was shot 16 times in effort to kill Fannie Lou Hamer and Mary Tucker. But her bold spirit was getting a lot of attention of other local activists. One of them was a secretary of the SNCC committee, Bob Moses. He asked another young activist, Charles McLaurin, to find the lady who started singing on the bus. And so he set out to look for her. And Bob Moses said, invite her to this meeting in Nashville, another SNCC meeting in Nashville. So Charles was telling the story in this interview. We'll put the link in the show notes. When he found her, he walked into this really small shack and the chair was facing away from the door. And he just kind of walked in and said, I was asked to, to get Fannie Lou Hamer. And she didn't even know who came, but she stood up with no hesitation. And she says, I'm Fannie Lou Hamer while she was turning around. And so he, he really pointed out that he could have been anybody. He could have been a kidnapper. He could have been, but she was the brave person that she was. And she stood right up with no fear and very superhero style. Like, vamonos, that's me. <laughs> Recognize, bitch. Right? <laughs> She's like, what you want? <laughs> uh, so she joined him. And uh, in an interview that I had seen, her daughter said that after that, like, the mom just 
traveled everywhere, spreading the word of how important voting was. She went to Nashville and just hit the ground running, talking to people, getting them to register to vote, um, and explaining really how their vote is their voice. One of the times they took a pit stop in Mississippi, it was here that she was arrested and taken to jail. And she was beaten so severely that blood vessels in one eye was burst, permanent hearing loss, and permanent organ damage even. It was pretty awful. And I was beaten in jail till my body was just hard as metal. I'm suffering now with a blood clot in the artery to the left eye and a permanent kidney injury on the right side. From the time that I began working, I never had a mind to stop. But after that happened to me in Wyoming, then I knew that it wouldn't be anything would stop me other than death. Yeah, that is awful. The officers were charged, but an all-white jury did let them off. Again, I don't think uh, anything has really changed there. The woman endured so much backlash that just fighting for even a little bit of equality really did so much damage. I mean, not just to her personally, but the two daughters that I had mentioned One of them had gotten ill one time, and the doctors even refused treatment, and her daughter died because of that. That is so awful. I know. Despite all of this, one of the daughters in the interview, link in the show notes, still described her mom as awesome and just like she was just a beaming person. So it sounded like, to kind of reference the song that she had sang, she really did let her light shine. In 1964, she went to the Secretary of State's office and stated that she wanted to run for office, uh, or for Congress, really. The lady comes back, instructing her to fill out some papers. All of that was done. And then the lady adds on, oh, yeah, but you need a check for $500. Okay. So um, she was with that same gentleman who had went to look for her that first time uh, when they went to the Nashville, Charles. So... Her and Charles called the SNCC office and they said, don't move. We're going to send you a check right now. So they delivered a $500 check. Okay, here you go, lady. Now here's that. And then, of course, she still adds another condition. If you're starting to see this awful pattern, the campaign manager has to sign these papers. And today's the last day to qualify. It's 4 p.m. We're shutting down at 4.30. If you don't get this in, like, you're out of luck. And she was telling Mac, that, or uh, Charles McLaurin, apparently she called him Mac, and she said, just go in there and sign those papers and let's go home. <laughs> and he put up a small fight pointing out, I don't know, I don't know the first thing about being a campaign manager, <laughs> to which she reported, you know as much about being a campaign manager as I do about running for Congress. Now go sign those papers so we can go home. <laughs> so what a great idea. And he was with her the whole, the whole time, right? This is how they were able to, to at least run for Congress. Of course, she, you know, was not able to, to win, but it could be done. You know what I mean? Like that was invigorating, I think, enough. Well, at the moment, right? Um, she went on to actually go to the 1964 Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City. She was set to give a speech. President Johnson was so afraid of what she might say that he really gave a reason to believe that famous quote that later on also became a a poem, the revolution will not be televised, because he decided to give an impromptu speech 
Can you believe that? The president decided to give an impromptu speech just to simply stop the remainder of her speech from being televised. His efforts were basically in vain, though, because people still kept talking about her speech and they were talking about how moving it was. Her speech was so brutally honest. Uh, I think you just kind of, everybody had to realize, like, you just got to respect it, you know. She very pointedly asked, is this America? Is this really like the land, the land of the free and home of the brave? I think bold questions like that can still be asked today. There's still a lot of uh, inequality. Yes, exactly. And even just, not even just like systematic uh, inequalities, but even just the unjust, you know, the police brutality towards all minorities, really. Yeah, there's still all the fuckery with the voting rights and all that, that they're trying to pass to make it more difficult for people to vote. And it really only affects people of color. It doesn't really affect white people because, you know, they have the means to do whatever obstacles it is that they're required to do. But, you know, when they make it more difficult for working people, working people are usually people of color. No, I I completely agree. I I could not agree with you more. Uh, So not only did she really change the face of activism, but she started Freedom Farms in 1969. This was part of this, like, generous nature of her and her daughter said that she would sit on the porch, peel peaches and pears, and she would put them in jars, and she would give them away because she saw people that were going hungry. Freedom Farms grew peas and okras and potatoes and peanuts, anything really they could to just try to help eliminate hunger in her own community. With her own earnings also, she would buy lots of property, and she would allow others to build their homes. She said that... um, the, the guy who was being interviewed, Charles, he said she believed that people should have an education, a home, food, and job. She died at 59. She was laid to rest on land that she owned. And I'm going to play another clip because uh, I thought he said it perfectly. We, we have a commitment to keep our legacy alive. The statue was one way that she'd always be standing tall in the Delta. We'd set it up as high as it's setting so that people who come to the statue will be looking up at her. The person who was being interviewed was Charles McLaurin. So that wraps up her amazing story. I mean, she did a lot, a lot of stuff, but, you know, I thought it was a very good one to share. It definitely is. It's kind of sad that, you know, they don't teach about these people in schools. I I never heard about these people. I mean, that alone should be a crime. And that was kind of like what I was thinking. Like, if we can't get these people in the history books, which we should, the least we can do is voting, you know, that's going to be a good way to honor these people. Yeah, it definitely is. There was a tweet that I saw the other day. It was um, that real famous picture. It was a, looked like maybe like a six-year-old little black girl. And she was going to, like when they started desegregating the schools, 
She was one of the first people that was going. And the caption on there said, if she had to go through this at such a young age, then your children are old enough to learn about this. You know how there's people that are saying, well, you know, we don't want to, I don't want my kids to learn about critical race theory or anything like that. I agree. I think it's completely silly with, you know, like, oh, they're going to feel so much shame. Well, America was not founded on anything like really great. I mean, we stole land right off the jump. I mean, slaves were here even before America had even been established. Like, this was not the shiny, but it doesn't mean we can't turn it around. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's the same reason why people believe that people can be forgiven and, you know, second chances. It does. Yeah, we have a dirty past, but I think in order to clean it up, you got to identify the stain. Okay, that means like, hey, let's own up to it. Let's say, hey, this was fucked up what we did. That I, that I think would go a, a long way. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got to you got to learn about it number 1 so that, that way you don't forget about it. And number 2 so you don't repeat the same mistakes. Exactly. As minorities, I think we definitely owe these great civil rights uh, activists so much. So, so I appreciate that I could share this one with you. Thank you for sharing. I'll bring a little bit of levity since this was a really heavy topic. Since we're always looking for weird and crazy stuff to try, I heard that Mountain Dew is done fucking around and they're bringing out a Baja Blast hard seltzer. So I think that we should go ahead and give that a try. It's supposed to come out in late February. But Mountain Dew, isn't that like the really like the sugariest one? I mean, they're all like a shit ton of sugar. That's why they taste good. <laughs> Keep forgetting. You're like the only man I know that has like a big sweet tooth. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so I got the big belly too. No, 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 no. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, um, do we know where they're sold or is it going to be like the Arby's vodka that like fills out like this? That I don't know about. I just know that it's coming out in late February. Apparently, they have four other flavors right now that are um, hard seltzer. Mm-hmm. But uh, that Baja Blast, I and mean, that's like a staple of, of Taco Bell. So yeah. <laughs> we should go get ourselves some Taco Bell, get ourselves some Baja Blast hard seltzer. Give it a little review. Only if the Mexican pizzas are back. Are the Mexican pizzas back? That's what I heard. Remember that time we went to go look for it? They didn't have it? Oh, my God. Come on. Also, I think it's very funny that they call them Mexican pizzas. I'm telling you. It's because they're hardworking pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> anyway. They do the stuff that nobody else wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> and they do it really fast. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so we wanted to read one of the thing right before we go. That's right. I know you teased about it earlier, um, about the message that Irene sent us. She had posted on our post on Instagram of the Rhode Island vampires that she had gone to see Mercy Brown's grave. And um, she uh, sent us a little account of her experience. So um, he said, I was going to go ahead and read to us what she put down. So my husband, Hector, and I took a vacation to New England this past October, and we road tripped through many states, stopping by many cemeteries along the way. We drove to Rhode Island specifically to visit Mercy's grave. The cemetery she's buried in is small and tucked beside a small church. If you blink, you'll miss it. We used a website that explained how to find her headstone next to a tree. And when we finally found it, it was bigger than we thought it would be. And it had flowers and trinkets surrounding her headstone. It's an out-of-the-way 
road, so not much traffic was going through there. Hector and I were really the only ones. It was cold, quiet, and calm. Knowing her story and how her body was desecrated because they feared she was a vampire, it was sad, especially to see her age on the headstone. I felt it would be bad juju to leave without leaving a token or a gift too. I think this is pretty freaking cool. Like, honestly, I feel like this this is a type of road trip that you and I would do. I don't know about like Rhode Island, but we would totally go see like gravestones. Come on. Yeah, I would totally be down for that. So thank you so much, Irene. And I think that that deserves the super friend of the week. Thank you so much, Irene and Hector, for sharing your pictures and your story. That's, I'm honestly a little bit jealous. Pretty cool. That is super cool. Well, congratulations, everybody. You've learned another dinner topic conversation, and hopefully you even got a dose of inspiration even. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, tell a friend, and don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all the socials at GreetingsTAC. Yeah. <laughs> Email us at GreetingsTAC at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 915-317-6669 if you have a story to share with us. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.